You're listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. This episode of Rootbound is brought to you by rain. Rain, the preferred precipitation of flora worldwide. Joining me on Rootbound, my name is Steve, and today at the top of the show, we're going to do a little bit of math, because when I first started this show, I thought it'd be really fun for people to tell me about plants that mean something to them, and then for me to tell them about plants that mean something to me. And you know what? It is really fun. I'm really enjoying the show, but now it has dawned on me that I'm going to have to talk about a lot of plants. And so I did a little bit of a back-of-the-envelope math here, and there are over 435,000 species of plants in the world. And if I do one a week, that equates to about 8,000 years worth of shows. Divide that by two because the guest is also talking about a plant, and so that's about 4,000 years that we could do the show. So that's great. But the little caveat that the plant also has to mean something to, to me and the guest. And so for me, I'm like, oh, wait, how many plants mean something to me? And there, there's a lot, but then I, then I figured out a small loophole is... I can at least talk about every plant that grows in my yard and garden, right? If I can't think of a plant that doesn't grow in my yard and garden, I can always back up there because anything that grows in my yard and garden means something to me, right? So every week's not going to be a plant like that. Um, spoiler alert, this week is a plant like that, but not every plant will be like that. But if I ever get stuck, I can always fall back to the plants in my yard. So I just did a quick mental inventory of the plants growing in and around my yard, and I've come up with... 60 or so there's probably more so that's at least over a year of content of, of of backup plants when i can't think of a plant that that uh uh you know doesn't grow in my yard so anyway we're safe for a little while everybody and i am actively working to build my relationship with new plants so i can have those experiences to bring to you the listener so i think the show's gonna go on for a long time probably not four thousand years but i don't know you never know uh, anyway, let's get on to our guest today. The guest on today's episode of Rootbound is my friend Anwesha. Hi, Anwesha. Hi, Steve. Uh, so do you have a plant you want to share with me? I do. Should I go for it? Please. Okay. Um, so I picked the mangrove. Um, and that's, I mean, I can jump into a little bit of a description for, you know, if anybody listening doesn't know, it's a general term for any like shrub or tree that grows on the coastline in like salty or brackish water. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, would you like to share why you chose the mangrove? Sure. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I just think they're really cool looking, but also I think I have a bit of a personal connection to it because um, I grew up in Florida, and um, in Florida, they're very common along the coastline. And I'm also from India. My family originates there, and they're also quite common there. And in fact, those are, I think, two of the biggest places where mangroves are sort of like big mangrove forests are known about. Um, so I grew up seeing them when I would go down, especially down south. I grew up in the Tampa area, but when we would drive um, down through the Everglades, there's a lot of mangroves there in the sort of swamps. Um, and then also in India, they tend to be 
um, more in the southern area. So last year, actually last to last year, I went to Kerala in India, and that's like in the southern region where they have something called like the backwaters. Um, it's like a term for this whole area of mangrove forests with like little canals. Um, and there are a lot of little resorts around, but you can also take like a houseboat, which is literally, a, you know, like a large, large canoe looking boat with a little hut on it. And there's like, sometimes there's even like a bed in there or like chairs um, and you sort of just like cruise through the mangrove forests on a houseboat. Um, sometimes they'll like have someone join you and play music or, you know, bring you snacks. My parents actually went on one, a houseboat, a houseboat trip through the mangrove forest where they caught fish while they were on the boat and then fried it and gave it to them. <laughs> so it was a, a very, uh, very full circle journey for them there. So, uh, but I think that that's my personal connection to it. That That's very interesting. So now what you said earlier is that, and I think I didn't know this, that a mangrove isn't like a specific species. It is a like classification of a kind of, of shrub or tree. Yeah, that's right. So I actually didn't know that either until, you know, preparing for our chat today. Um, but yeah, it's a general term for any shrub or tree that grows in the saltier brackish water. But then I found out um, when I did a little bit of Googling that the true mangrove, which maybe some of us think of, of like a specific type of tree um, as a mangrove, that's called genus Rhizophora. Um, R-H-I-Z-O-P-H-O-R-A. Um, and so that's like the true mangrove that you, maybe you picture when you think of mangrove, but actually it encompasses like over 80 different species um, that are all classified as mangroves. And you know if there are, is it Rhizophora? Is that the name mm -hmm. you said? Do you know if that there's genus Rhizophora growing in Florida and in India? I don't know, actually. Okay, well, if I'm you're listening, sure listener, and you know that answer, <laughs> send me an email. Um, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't be surprised um, that, yeah. that that's the case because, well, I mean, plants are weird. Like sometimes you have plants where they only exist in like one continent. And sometimes you have plants where they exist everywhere, the same genus, maybe not the same exact plant, but the same genus will be like all over the globe. And it's very fascinating to think about how those plants moved how about. How they got there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, so we, anyway, that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, Rise of four. I'm going to Google this real quick. Which yeah. Is I'm Googling. How do you spell that again? R-H-I-Z-O-P-H-O-R-A. And also another thing I learned while I was looking this up was in the, especially in the South, South of Asia, Southeast Asia, um, mangroves are called mongols, like M-A-N-G-A-L. Um, so they call it like a mongol tree or a mongol forest. And I thought that was really interesting because mongol, at least in Hindi and Bengali, which are both languages that I speak, um, means like good or auspicious. Like often you'll give someone a blessing that says, may everything that happens to you be mongol or may your journey be mongol. And that means like may it sort of go well or be good. Um, so I thought it was interesting that this tree also went by the same name in that area. Interesting. Do you know if there is an etymological reason behind that? I looked it up and I, I didn't find anything, actually. I thought that was interesting because I thought there would be a lot that would say, well, Mongol means this in Hindi, but it actually, none of the mangrove resources that I found at least said that. I could have missed it, but it's possible that it's just like known in the region and no one really 
talks about it outside of that or online. I'm not sure. Very um, interesting. Yeah. I I haven't really I don't think I've really been in a mangrove forest mangrove forest actually. Now that yeah, I think about you gotta it, add I that to your list. Seriously, I do. I've been in a lot of forests, but not yeah. a mangrove forest. Um, no, totally. Um, did you find any other fun facts or dazzling details about mangrove? Yes, I did. I oh, found great. a lot actually. Um, I can start by telling you a few interesting or dazzling things I found out about their biology. So first, um, since they grow in salty water, um, they're, you know, first of all, that's pretty unique because most trees don't do that. Um, so they're very tolerant to salty conditions and low oxygen environments because their roots are literally submerged in water. And as someone who got into gardening, uh, I can tell you how common overwatering is. I feel like every freaking gardening resource I ever read about anything that was happening to my many plants told me that I was probably overwatering them. So it's fascinating to hear about, you know, this whole class of trees that literally thrive on being, you know, quote, overwatered. Their whole root system is submerged um, in water around twice a day. Um, and they are able to still draw nutrients in that sort of anaerobic environment. Um, they also, I noted, I read that they absorb fresh water from the roots when it trickles down the roots as it rains. So because converting, you know, salt water to fresh water is pretty energy intensive, they really like it when it rains because they get some sort of like free fresh water that way as it trickles down their roots. So um, is that is that like the, the primary way they actually are getting fresh water is getting it from rain and not from like some kind of desalinization process in the roots? No, I, they do conduct a pretty robust desalinization oh. process in their roots. Um, so there's, I, I read there's a couple different types. Some mangroves filter out the salt from their roots, like you said, and they're able to filter about 80% to 90% of the salt out of their roots. So people did tests of the water, you know, that they're living in versus the water found inside of their stems. And, and there was a huge difference there. Um, but other mangroves also secrete salt through their leaves, actually. So you can, you know, if you look closely, you'll see like white, a white cast or little crystals on the leaves of, of salt. Um, I was curious whether anybody like harvested salt that way, but I didn't find anything about that. Yeah. Or you just like stick a leaf in your um, meal <laughs> and salt it up. Stir it around. Yeah. 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 Um, Interesting. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty neat. And then another cool like biological fact about it was that the seeds actually sprout while they're already on the tree, um, which is kind of unique. And then they drop into the water and um, and they spread that way. So they sort of float through the water and like plant themselves elsewhere. Um, but they've sort of adapted to this completely, you know, water-based system. So they sprout while they're on on the tree and have access to the air and everything and then drop into the water when they're ready. Oh, wow. That is super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a little sprouted seed that is like floating on the water. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then some other things I found out, and I, I think some of us already know about this, but they have um, a huge ecological value. So, you know, their dense root systems help guard against water erosion. Um, they're a habitat for lots of different kinds of fish and even sharks, I found out. Um, and as well as animals above the surface, like monkeys and, you know, I read even tigers and from personal experience, I know raccoons because I uh, once went to the Everglades and was on one of those little speedboat rides through the mangrove, you know, 
swamps and there were raccoons sort of coming down the mangrove roots to come check us out on the boat. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> that's either adorable or terrifying depending <laughs> on how you feel about raccoons. I loved them at the I, at the time. I was a kid and the guard, um, guard, not guard, the tour guide um, was allowing us to feed them, which now in hindsight is not good. And I do not recommend, and this podcast does not condone this behavior, I'm sure, but very true. we did it at the time. And so we fed raccoons marshmallows in the Everglades. Mm, um, natural food. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know better now, but yeah. Um, wow, that- <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, that, that's just such a great story about like humans interaction with nature and how like misguided it all can be. And like, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, and of course you don't know, like, oh yeah, <laughs> but even thinking about it now, it's like, what? Feeding, first of all, feeding a wild animal and second, feeding it marshmallows is like, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know? being on a speedboat in the mangrove forest, feeding it like raccoons, marshmallows is like <laughs> peak climate change behavior. So. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, well, we we all are learning. That's what this podcast yes. is about, and you have, yes. you've learned that lesson long ago, I imagine. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> um, but yes, they have great ecological value, and apparently, eighty percent of our fish catch around the world have some sort of connection to the mangroves. So, if you like eating fish, um, you probably have that to owe to mangrove forests at oh, wow. some point in the in that journey. Um, and then some sad facts to close my sure, little yeah. dazzling journey here. Um, sadly, they are uh, getting you know destroyed, I guess, over time. Unfortunately, about 1% of mangroves are disappearing per year, apparently. Um, and so my home, Tampa Bay, has lost about 44% of its coastal wetlands already. Um, which includes both mangroves and also saltwater marshes, but um, you know, generally this kind of environment. Um, so yeah, and that's uh, that's due to all kinds of things, including coastal development, um, pesticide runoff, clear cutting mangrove uh, wood, which is apparently termite resistant, so it's mm-hmm. valuable for that reason. Um, so yeah. Wow. Uh, well, that yeah was that that's the 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 <laughs> last dazzling detail. That's the sad last dazzling detail. Floating away from the salt marshes and silt-filled rivers of the mainland, carried by currents, the young mangrove seedlings can make long oceanic journeys. Do you mind if I tell you about a plant? I do not mind at all. I would love that. Okay, great. Well, my plant is right here. I'm holding a mug. This is a podcast, so they can't see. I have tea in this mug, and, and the tea is a plant that um, I've been growing in my garden now for about three years. Wow. And may- yeah, and maybe I'll, um, I'll kind of go back uh, to how I, I got to know this plant. Mm. Yeah, please. Drink some tea on, on the mic there. Um, <laughs> so we, my wife and I got this house. My wife, Carla, you know her. Uh, I do know on, her. <laughs> she was on an episode a few, while, a few episodes ago. Uh, we got this house and I got really into gardening, which is one of the reasons I started this podcast because I'm like super into plants now. And um, when we were starting the garden, I was like going through um, a website for seeds and I'm like, what do I want to plant? I'm just looking through all these plants and I'm picking, you know, normal stuff like tomatoes and, and you know, yeah. 
carrots and all that stuff. But then I would see other things. I'm like, oh, that's an interesting plant. What is that? I've never heard of that before. And one of them that came up was a plant that was listed as Mexican mint marigold. And I was oh, like, cool. I was like, I've never heard of that. I will order it. <laughs> and uh, I ordered it. I planted it. And it just grew great. It grew like crazy. But I didn't still didn't really know what it is. I, I did some Googling about it. And kind of my understanding of the plant has kind of grown over the years. And now I feel like I understand it a fair amount. But um, it's sometimes called Mexican mint marigold. It's also sometimes called Mexican tarragon. Oh. Um, some of its other common names are, um, let me look this up here, uh, sweet scented marigold. And then in Spanish, it's often called pericón or yerbanis. And I know oh. you speak a little Spanish, yerbanis. Yeah. What would you think about that plant? Uh, like uh, like an anise-flavored herb? I mean, Indeed. like yerba mate is, you know, I maybe, I don't know. That's the only yeah. time I've heard yerba used in that way, but yeah. Yeah, it is an anise-flavored. So the, the, it has a very strong smell of anise. And oh. so... Uh, and, uh, and so you know, if you like that flavor, it's great. Not not everyone likes it. How do you feel about anise? I really like it. Oh, I great. actually cooked with tarragon the first time uh, last Christmas, and I didn't know it had that kind of flavor at all. I just only heard the word tarragon, never actually tasted it. But Yeah, so this is a little bit more strong than that. I don't know hmm. much about French tarragon, but this is quite a strong anise smell. Um, and and uh, and yeah, it's, it's super tasty, and it makes great tea. Apparently, the tea is very popular. Um, across Latin America. I have also here some of the leaves right here. I'm doing show and tell on a podcast. Oh, cool. So these are dried leaves, but I'll get a little bit more into the tea. I have another sample in a second, but let me, um, let me talk about a few other dazzling details about the plant. Yes, please. So first of all, it's, it's, um, Latin name is Tagetus lucida, which Tagetus is the marigold family. There's actually apparently two marigold families, Tagetus and Calendula, but the majority of them are Tagetus. Um, Are they related to the flower marigold family? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. In fact, they have a flower. It doesn't look the same. It's not as like like poofy, um, you know, like we think of normal marigolds, but it is a really bright, the flower is a really bright orange. Um, They're just smaller, but they're really pretty, but they're just not as poofy. But it is is related to the the marigolds we all think when we see marigolds. Um, that's why I think it's called Mexican mint marigold because it's well, it's from Mexico and <laughs> and, and and like Central America. Um, it is a marigold, but it also I don't know why they call it mint, but it it is like an herb. It's got much more of a, a flavor than most. Yeah. I don't know if you can eat other marigolds. That's not something I've researched. <laughs> um, I know calendula is is used sometimes in like herbal yeah. medicines, but um, I don't know about the other marigolds for food purposes. To get this lucida, lucida means like bright and shining. And I think that's because the flower is really pretty and intense, bright red. That's my theory. I didn't confirm that. So don't quote me on that. The name Tagetus is apparently named after the Etruscan god Tagus. I don't know why, but that's where the name of that family of plants comes from, is, is some Etruscan god. Um, the plant is from... Mexico, and so the Etruscan god has nothing to do with it, but its name in um, Nahuatl, which is the native language of the people around the Aztec areas of, of Mexico, is Yautli, and apparently mm-hmm. it has been used for, like, you know, millennia as an incense, and it's particularly connected to the rain god Tlaloc, 
Um, oh, which, that's so cool. There's a super cool statue of Tlaloc in Mexico City near the um, uh, Anthropological Museum, which uh, Carla has taken me a few times. But I was like, oh, when I was reading, oh, Tlaloc, I've seen that guy. <laughs> <laughs> statue. Um, so um, that's some of the fun facts. Now, when it comes to the tea I'm drinking, I am not drinking this green uh, leaves that I'm showing you right now, these green dry leaves. I'm drinking a different style of tea. And that is a little bit of a longer story. Hmm. Um, so last summer we went to Alaska for vacation and in some, yeah, in the summer in Alaska, if you're out in any place where there's like plains or anything, you'll see this sea of pink flowers. And that's a plant called fireweed. And I've heard about that before. But this year when I was there, I, I was Googling it and I looked it up and I can't remember its Latin name, but I was Googling fireweed and I was like, oh, what's the deal with fireweed? And one of the things that was listed under fireweed was that it's sometimes used as tea. Oh. And so just to, no, just, you know, so we're, no spoilers, this plant is not related to fireweed at all. However, this is my thought process that was happening. I was reading that this, this fireweed has been used as tea and then I read that they make the tea in a oxidative, oxidatively aged process like you treat black tea. And then I was having this thought, I was like, wait a minute, oh yeah, I, let me remind myself about how black tea is made and what the process for black tea, because you know, green tea and black tea are the yeah. same plant, right? Yeah. And the process for black tea is you take the fresh leaves and you like bruise them in some way. You crumple them up or there's different machines that do it. And basically it causes these bruising and then you age the tea oxidatively. And it's essentially the same process when a fruit gets bruised is what's happening to the tea. Mm. And that's what turns it from green to black. Really? And some, yeah. I mean, and when some, a fruit gets bruised, it, I mean, it's not great. And then it kind of looks like it's rotting. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what's happening here. <laughs> it's got to be in a controlled fashion. And some people will call that fermentation, but it's actually not fermentation. It's just oxidation. Okay. So, stuff inside the leaf is oxidating and, and changing the flavor profile and turning it dark. And so once you do that for a little bit, once you oxidatively age the tea, then you fire it, you put it in an oven, which will stop that process. You, you evaporate all the liquid Water. and the process yeah. stops. Uh, so, so that's how you make tea. And then I read that people do this with fireweed as well. And I was like, why, why are other plants, why, why don't we make tea about, out of other leaves in that same process. Like until that point, I'd only right. ever heard of tea being made that way, like the tea leaf. And then there's this other plant they do it with. And then I was like, well, why don't I try that with something I'm growing? And then I was thinking, well, the leaves of Yerbenese, they're, they're of the similar consistency of the fireweed. They're, they're much smaller, but they're like a little bit tough. So like, they're not going to just crumple if I bruise them. Mm. So I tried it. I went home, I picked a bunch <laughs> of the Yerbenese. I like, uh, stuck it between my hands and like rolled it up, you know, like into like balls and stuff. And then I put it in a Mason jar with a, with a, like just a, a cloth over it. So it's not like airtight mm -hmm. for about 24 hours. And I stuck it in a tray in the oven for like 10 minutes on kind of a, I forget what heat. And this is what came out. This is the, Whoa, that looks like tea oxidatively aged Yerbenese um, tea, which is better in my opinion Maybe it's just because I put more work into it, but it's better than just the regular <laughs> green tasting. stuff. I like, I like the green stuff too. Here's some of the, the tea. I'm showing it to the camera here. 
Whoa, that's and so has, cool. So for those a, of you listening, Steve just showed me a bowl full at first of like green dried leaves. So it's kind of like if you looked at, you know, a dried eucalyptus wreath or something where it still has that green color and a little bit ashy, but it's dry. And then this the mason jar kind is completely browned. So it looks like, you know, your regular tea that you would think of when you think of tea that you're brewing from a loose leaf version. And thank you for the description. That was really, really useful. Um, <laughs> no problem. I always sometimes forget. Well, I mean, I don't forget, but I should remember this is a podcast. It is not a visual medium, but it's, <laughs> it's fun to show stuff on podcasts and, and have people use their imagination. Uh, but this, this smell is much stronger. And that's what I was drinking just now is the oxidatively aged Yerbanese. And the reason I chose this plant is because last time we visited you, I brought some of this, but I left it in my hotel for you. So oh, I owe you some of this next time man. I see you. I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to try it. That was the tea. Handmade, home oxidized yerba Wow. Tea. That's so, really cool. So a couple of questions. Uh, yeah. First, um, when you're growing this, are you getting those bright orange flowers or do you prevent it from flowering so that you get more leaves to make more tea? No, we do get the bright orange flowers, um, and some you can use the flowers too in the tea. But oh. this year we set up an ofrenda for Dia de los yeah. Muertos, and we used the flowers on the ofrenda, which are you know marigolds are used for that, and we didn't have any marigolds, so that's so cool. Do you that. want to say what a what an ofrenda is? Oh yeah, I mean if you've if you've seen the movie Coco, <laughs> the Disney movie <laughs> I Coco, have, is a and good, that's how I know what it is. Is a good uh, starter for that. I mean, I didn't have much knowledge, but it, uh, of that either as a. You know, but my wife is Mexican, and so it's a um, it's a Mexican holiday that is around um, Halloween that is about giving respect to your ancestors, and you set up a a like uh, an, an altar where you have pictures of them and various things to like guide their spirits. It's a fun, uh, beautiful holiday, and uh, and uh, and we yeah we use the the yerbanese flowers on that which traditionally use marigold but i guess i even read some places that sometimes this is used or you know it's in the same family it looks pretty yeah it, it works so that's pretty yeah. cool and then when between the two kinds like what is the taste of the green kind does it taste more like you know that green flavor like if you eat a blade of grass that like green flavor does it taste more <laughs> like that than... i don't think it's that green flavor but it is a little bit like the difference between green tea and black tea. Okay. Right? It's yeah. a little bit sharper. Um, yeah. I, I, it's hard. I'm not really good at describing flavors, but mm. um, it's not I'll quite as strong. Um, and, and you know, I think you also need to steep it longer. I think that's one thing that happens when you do the oxidative process is it releases the compounds the much faster because mm. the hot water can act, activate that more. So, um I like them both. I end up putting the green stuff mixing with other teas. I've been growing a bunch of um, teas and, and spoiler alert, there'll probably be lots of teas that I grow uh, on this podcast <laughs> in the future. Um, actually, episode five is a tea that I am growing. You've heard it. It's not out yet for you, but <laughs> <laughs> for everyone else, it is out. You may have already heard it, um, but I'm growing that one. But that's going to be a theme because there's a number of other plants that I'm growing for tea in the garden because they're kind of easy to grow. I didn't know that. I would have never even thought to grow a tea. I mean, I grow mint and I've tried putting like a few mint leaves um, into, you know, hot water. But I actually think, you know, maybe with mint too, you're supposed to do something to it first because like the fresh leaves, I don't know. It wasn't that better dried. strong. Yeah. I think it's better dried because then the water can like 
suck the the, mm-hmm. the flavors out. Whereas if there's already water in there, it's harder for the water to. Oh, pull. that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, or you can crush it up more, but I think I think you know drying might help. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm I'm growing mint as well, which was actually the focus of an episode. Um, episode number three was was mint, uh, and I talked about mint. So oh, cool. Um, yeah, you should listen to that one. Yeah, I will. I'll get the dazzling <laughs> yeah. details on mint too. Then indeed. Nice. Um, no, yeah, yeah. I mean, the only I think the only problem with growing tea is you have like a balcony garden. Is like when you're pulling leaves, like potentially you might need more. Like you need a decent volume, right? Because mm-hmm. tea, mm-hmm. right? It's not like a vegetable or whatever. Like you need a lot of leaves, but you you've got enough space. You could you could grow more more teas. Yeah, I totally could. And I I mean I've been trying out different plants to grow too. So maybe next summer. Once it warms up around here, um, I can try that out. I mean, I'm curious, I guess, with herbs, what I was learning last summer as I was trying to garden, like, different kinds of things. Like, with fruiting plants, the goal was to stop getting the plant from producing so many leaves and go into the reproduction phase and, like, fruit. Um, but for herbs where we don't want their fruit, um, I the usually the advice was to just prune them back and get rid of any like any flowering that was occurring because otherwise it would ruin the flavor of the leaves or sort of like start putting all its energy into the flower and fruit as opposed to the leaves. So is there anything like that where like if you wanted this tea to taste the best, you should prevent it from ever flowering? Yeah, well, that's actually a good point. Uh, with this one, I haven't found that preventing it from flowering, but just as the leaves get older, they're tougher and maybe not as flavorful, mm. but it's actually still pretty good. It's not like something like basil where like when basil flowers, it just like, um, this, yeah, it's just not fun anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but this one is not really like that, but I, I did find that, which also I took a little bit of that hint from reading about tea is taking the, uh, like some of the, the, the nicer tea is hand harvested and they, just take off the tops of the of the stems, oh. like the smaller, younger leaves that are coming at the top. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that a little bit for some of them. And then what but do you also do with I, the lower leaves? Well, in this case, I, I end up just harvesting it all. So I have a whole bunch hanging up to dry and all. Oh, cool. I'll end up like using some of it, but honestly, some of it will end up being composted by the end of the year. Like I didn't use all of it last year. Yeah. I got to get better at using my herbs um, in that way. Like I could dry it and powder it, but I don't know how I would use it in culinarily i need i've done a little bit experimenting with that like using it for tarragon yeah but not enough yet so i need to i need to do more but like yeah, can you eat it straight yeah yeah you can or chew like on in a leaf. salad it's, or no too strong it, you could add it to a salad i think i wouldn't use the older leaves um because they're a little bit tougher Tough. but the younger leaves but like you wouldn't want to add too many because it's pretty strong but that's a good idea i should try it i need to get better at, at using stuff i get like narrowed in on one thing and then I like you know yeah. make, make an oxidized tea but like I, I need to figure out how to use it to its uh, extent especially because it grows so well and it's perennial so it comes back every year and it seems to come back bigger and like like last year I needed to like um be really aware to to like keep it from like overgrowing the herb bed and I need to even do a better job this year because it kind of did kind of overgrow the herb bed wow. so I need to like trim it back and make more tea early in the year so it doesn't like get so big so yeah it sounds like it likes your 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 garden like the climate is is good for it yeah apparently um you know we're it's we're significantly colder than it than in mexico i'm guessing 
Yeah, but, and so I, yeah, I wonder about that. But yeah, it, it seems to do great, and that's what I'm always, that's what I'm learning now in my garden. Is I want to pick the plants to just grow with my least interaction possible. Um, that's what I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm not really like I don't have the greenest thumb, but I just like will pick the the plants to just do their best. So yeah. Cool. Well, well yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's my plant. <laughs> Awesome. It's a really cool plant and I can't wait to try the tea at some point. Um, I'll have to make a note next time. Next time we see each other, I will bring you some tea. (laughs) Can't wait. All right. Bye. Sounds good. Bye. So I was doing some research on mangroves after my conversation with Enwesha and I learned that there are many different types, but there are four genuses that are very common. And so Let's learn about those genuses, courtesy of a 1970s educational film. Several distantly related families of flowering plants have evolved species of mangroves. Red mangroves, rhizophora at the water's edge. Black mangroves, Avicinia, just inland of the red, overhanging. The white, Laguncularia, oval-shaped leaves and multiple trunks. The button, Conocarpus, forest maker of the coast. Four distinct species, each occupying a different position in the structure of the mangrove community. A community of trees that invades the sea by building up the soil. My guest on today's episode of Rootbound was Anwesha Banerjee. Anwesha is an attorney and urban gardening enthusiast. Rootbound is hosted by me, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside... Perhaps you could explore a mangrove forest, if that's something nearby to you. But perhaps leave the marshmallows at home. Rain, the preferred precipitation of flora worldwide.